1: Hello, listeners. Hello, Janine.
0: Hey, Evelyn. Hey,
1: listeners. So, this episode is a skills based episode. We're looking, um, there are a few episodes throughout the season where we're looking specifically at business skills and how individuals can improve from within an organization. This one is focusing on people management.
0: I first learned about our guest when I participated in a workshop that was hosted by the General Assembly called How to Be an Effective Manager. And Forum impressed me with her coaching abilities and her specific tactics and basically strategies that she presented, not only on the roles and responsibilities of a manager, but also like common areas where new managers often struggle
1: So the questions that we're going to be asking and addressing are, you know, how do I go from managing to leading? And what is really effective management, especially in the changing climate with a hybrid workplace?
0: And what's unique about Forum's point of view and her coaching is her emphasis on helping new and mid-level managers And this is often a group who is overlooked and has a lack of support around them, especially when they're moving through their career. There aren't a lot of training options available for mid-level managers in an AEC firm. And so we wanted to invite her on because she's actually talking about how to coach and her business is leveraging technology to make coaching more accessible, scalable, tangible, and results-driven in in an effort to support a wider audience of growing leaders.
1: So I'm going to go ahead with her bio. After starting her career in consulting, Forum left everything she knew to co-found an innovative coaching company. She helps her clients accelerate their success by leveraging her consulting background of driving results through data while combining her strengths of empathy and individuality. Forum has been featured in publications like CNBC, the Chicago Tribune, and Inc., where she shares her vision of making coaching accessible to people of all age groups and socioeconomic statuses. Forum is an adjunct faculty member at Northwestern University and has a master's in learning and organizational change with her coaching certification in organizational and leadership coaching for Northwestern University. She is a mother, a wife, and a passionate individual who is driven to empower those around her, She recently had another child and joined us right before leaving on maternity leave.
0: And Amala Vida, her company, is an innovative career leadership, life, and health coaching company centered around the understanding that you can and should love your life. Amalavita uses a proprietary blend of online e-coaching modules with one-on-one virtual sessions with your personally matched coach to help its members create meaningful, measurable change in their lives.
1: Let's cut to the interview.
2: I am the chief coaching officer and co-founder of Amalavita. A little bit about me personally before I go into what Amalavita is. I I was born and raised in India, moved here uh, to the U.S. when I was nine. Uh, It was a pretty interesting transition. We didn't know English and we moved in with my family who cousins we had never met before and just tried to figure out like how to assimilate in the American culture and learn the language and, um, you know, really drastic shift in that. But it was I, I mentioned this because it really carries with me and also how I show up as a coach, but also the trajectory that I've been on, how some of those values get informed within Amalavita and the culture that we have. You know, so fast forward, I, you know, started my career in consulting, I was in healthcare consulting, and realized that I wanted to do a little bit more, but didn't know what it was, you know, that that age old question, what do I want to do with my life? And (laughs) I didn't know how to answer that. So the first thing that I did was figure out how do I grow myself behind beyond just working? And I found my this program at Northwestern called Learning and Organizational Change, and I thought it was fascinating, especially the way that it played into the consulting realm. So I started doing my master's part time. And the first thing that they did and their philosophy was: if you want to be a change leader, you need to be a leader yourself, which means you need to know who you are. Therefore, we're going to give you a leadership coach, and that was my first ever entry and exposure to coaching. And the first hour in, I still remember of my first coaching session, I was like, oh my God, I cannot believe that there's so many things I still don't know about myself. How do I have this many blind spots? How is it that one person was able to just help me figure out or understand that there was a better way to do something? And I've been in so many training sessions before, but this was just drastic and how powerful it was. And so I started getting really intrigued in the coaching realm and I started to do more research and found out that there was also a coaching program at Northwestern. Um, so I also then started doing my coaching certification in organizational leadership coaching. Fast forward to all of that, I finished my coaching certification and I realized that I wanted to do coaching, not consulting. Very big differences, but also a lot of overlaps. And so when I made that had that realization of I want to do coaching, I didn't know what that looked like. I just knew that I wanted to practice it somehow. And at that time, you know, when the universe wants to tell you something, they really want to tell you something. At that time, I got introduced to my now business partner, Nicole, who had gotten also from a consulting background. She got promoted. And as part of a promotion benefit, she received a leadership coach and she didn't believe in coaching at all either. And after she got coaching, she's like, whoa, this is actually pretty cool. And so her thought was, how do we build a coaching industry or business around making coaching a little bit more, I'm going to say consulting rigor with more accessibility and more innovative, given that the coaching industry has not been disrupted for decades. And here I am thinking, how do I just coach? So (laughs) Nicole's like, I want to build a coaching business. I'm like, well, I just want to coach. And so we started Amalavita. Amalavita, what it stands for is love life. Our whole intent is you should be able to love what you're doing because we came from that background of, we were burned out consultants. We didn't know what next was, but we also didn't want to sacrifice money. You know, it's like, I don't want to sacrifice money to do something we, I love. And we had that or mentality it's make money or enjoy your life, but not the and, which is you can do something you're passionate about and make money and make sure that you're enjoying what you're doing. So we named our company Vida with the sense of, we want to make coaching more accessible. We want to infuse results and process into coaching, and we want to be able to make coaching more innovative, okay, leverage technology. So that's how we started about five years back.
1: Wow.
0: So yeah, and I think you are doing something pretty unique with your um, coaching practice. It seems pretty unique that you're able to bring on so many different coaches and you offer different services to different, like you do individual, you also do corporate. You have like a, it feels like you have a team around you that's able to offer a lot of diverse types of coaching for different settings, which is unique to me.
2: Yeah. Um, Very astute of you to point that out, Janine. You know, our, when we, we kind of stumbled upon this idea of what we call a coach's platform, You know, at first, when we started Amalavita, we just thought we just wanted to be, you know, the coaching company where the the name, the reputation was there. And I'm going to use the word, I'm going to use the analogy of like Costco. I'm obsessed with Costco because I know that if I ever need something, something doesn't work, I can rely on them to have the high quality. And if it doesn't work out, they have that high customer satisfaction. And so when Nicole and I started Amalavita, we thought, how do we be a company where if you have a coaching need? you know, you can go there for reliable, certified, high quality coaching, that your goals are going to be met, and you're going to be treated with so much care and attention, because ultimately, that's what matters. I mean, in coaching, we talk about so many vulnerable things that are personal to us, no matter what it is that you're talking about. And, you know, as we were starting to grow, we just started to realize that there was so much interest in coaches who wanted to be part of this mission, and who wanted to be part of a team. And so we opened that up and we because we started looking at the industry. And it's either you're a solopreneur, which means you're a one-stop, you're you're the you're the business owner, marketing, finance, legal, and the coach. Mm-hmm. Or you're this big consulting, coaching firm where you do a little bit of consulting, a little bit of coaching. And what we found was the solopreneurs were they could be across any and every industry. The bigger companies like your corn fairies they were specific to certain types of organizations who had a lot of access to resources. Mm -hmm. They were usually the because of financial resources, targeted for organizations like who had, you know, senior executives, and who had a lot of money to spend, but then it's like there was nothing in the middle. And if you look at, there was a sliver of organizations like ours, where if you did want to have different types of coaches, they were all contractors, but not within the firm. So we were like, okay, there has to be a better way where our clients can have consistent experience, no matter who you get coached by, but our coaches also have to feel like they're part of something together. So we built this coaches platform where when our coaches are working with Amo Vida, they work exclusively with Amo Vida they define their own hours and stuff, but they work exclusively with us. And every coach has their own niche and specialty. To your point, you said we do, you know, we have career coaching, we have life coaching, we have health and wellness coaching, then we do coaching leadership coaching on the individual side, plus with organizations, we do workshops, we work with higher ed programs, we need to be able to make sure that we have the right fit for the right type of individual or goal. But at the same time, everyone should go to Amla Vida and have a consistent experience, should have a consistent process, should know that I'm going to get results. And that's kind of how we started our what we're called like our coaches platform, or our coaches work exclusively with us.
0: So the first time I learned about what you're doing was through a workshop that you were offering through the General Assembly on being an effective manager. And the specific thing that stood out to me that I thought was extremely poignant of you to recognize is that this idea that leadership skills are not typically being taught to mid-level managers, and uh, there's more of an emphasis on training senior leadership and supporting uh, resources around those, like that core executive team or the core management team. So, I wanted to ask you a, to expand on that idea and and how you found that niche, and then also how you figured out how to start teaching in that space.
2: Great question, Janine. So, uh, this kind of goes back a little bit of history in coaching space. So, coaching is usually one on one like this. So you set up a time with a client, you have a one on one conversation. So it does take a lot, it's it's time constrained. In addition to that, it's also very historically expensive, especially if you're going with, you know, like a highly qualified trained coach, it becomes very expensive. Usually, the senior executive team is the smallest team. And then it's like a pyramid. And then it just gets more and more individuals, which means you cannot afford typically, to have one-on-one conversations at all levels. Hence why it's typically been reserved for executives. Harvard Business Review did this um, research and they called it the 12-year gap, or at least we call it the 12-year gap trap. But essentially in that research, what they found is you typically get promoted to become a people manager where you're responsible for individual's career trajectory at the age of 30. At the age of 42 is when you get your first formal training, such as in coaching. That's 12 years of you just winging it. That's 12 years of a lot of habits being formed. That's 12 years of, especially if you think about being a manager for the first time, one, your whole identity is shooken because you're like, wait, I used to be so good at what I used to do, which is why you made me a manager. And now I have to redefine who I am. Now I need to also figure out how to manage other people while being successful in my role Also figure out how to influence and keep my boss happy and all that stuff that happens, which can put you in this swirl and not make you productive because you don't necessarily have the right tools. And when people think, well, we're going to do new management trainings, it's like, okay, so how to run an effective meeting. Those are tactical things that can only get you so much. The complexity of being a people manager is people. Everyone is different. And to be able to understand how to manage, you can do that when you know yourself, which is the biggest disconnect and gap. You can learn to coach others when you get coached, which means you have to understand your tendencies. What are your blind spots? What do you do? And what do you need to know? And so kind of going into this 12 year gap concept, we thought, well, typically before all of these habits are already being formed. And you say, well, this is how I've been doing it. It's not that people can't change later, they absolutely can, it's just a little bit harder. Also, when they need it the most, it's not there. So our intent is how do you go from being that individual contributor, and or the mindset of, okay, I've I've gotten the basics, the foundations to now I can take myself to the next level. So from manager to leader. And we think about that shift from manager to leader. We think about the individual components, skills that basically coaches use, like, how do I actively listen to what you're saying and not saying? How do I ask you questions to help you identify the problem and the solution rather than me just telling you what to do? How do I empower you and delegate more effectively so that you're learning, but at the same time, I'm challenging you to get outside of your comfort zone? How do I understand what motivates you? Maybe the mental models you have and why you do what you do. And these are the skills that are typically not taught because one, you can't just Google it. Also, um, you know, these are the things that are individual to the person. You know, Janine, what the way that you approach feedback and conflict is probably very different than the way Evelyn approaches it. And so understanding, well, what's your relationship to that? What's holding you back? How do you now tailor that to the context around you? that's the type of coaching that we want to get to. Now, the question is, well, how do you how do you bring the cost down? What does that look like? And the answer to that the short answer to that with us is, that's really where our technology comes in. Our intent is to be able to integrate we call them e coaching technology, which mimics a coaching conversation. And so our intent is to be able to have you do a lot of those self guided reflection before you meet with your coach, to give you frameworks before you meet with your coach. When we've identified now that there's about 13 skills or so that we realize that most people at that mid-level management title don't have, Mm -hmm. like active listening, deep questioning, how to have coaching conversations, understanding mindsets, mental models, et cetera. What will happen is we assign these modules to you, you go through these frameworks, and now you come up with some, at least a foundational understanding. You've done a lot of reflection, That information also goes to your coach, so that when you meet with your coach, it's not saying, so Janine, so let's talk about, let me explain to you the basics of feedback. But rather, you would have reflected and said, you know, I find feedback, I realize now from these reflections and learning the framework, that I find feedback really challenging with a peer, especially those who tend to get defensive. And that's Mm -hmm. when I just shut down. Okay, now Janine, we're going to use an hour of our conversation to dig into that. That's how we can have less coaching conversations, but they're a lot more effective. And now your time for execution is a lot shorter because you've done a lot of the prep work.
0: That's a great point. So really understanding the individual perspective and rather than coming in and teaching the overall big picture of ideas is narrowing in on what specific people need. And that's really the the gift within coaching is trying to really tap into individual communication and understanding around specific issues.
2: Exactly. I mean, think about like, just take sports coaches. They look at, they watch the sports players on the field and they're constantly looking at what are you doing well? Where, where might be the misstep or what are the patterns that I'm, I'm able to observe because I'm not in the boots on the ground. And then the coach effectively has their coaching with individual players, and then they can look at things collectively. But it's always understanding, well, what do you what are you doing? Well, where do you need to pivot? And that's what a lot of that's what coaching is. And coaching does is that to be able to understand what's working for you? Where are your blind spots? How can I hold up a mirror for you to be able to learn that, and then improve?
1: So you talked about a lot about the 12 years that um, the 12 year trap, which is an interesting like now I have to go look that up. But I also know that Vida kind of adopted specific wording around that. Um, and you mentioned a few of the skills that mid-level managers use you find are often missing, um, communication being a big one because everybody is different. Are there other skills that mid-level managers tend to need additional support around, or is it truly just so variable from person to person?
2: Yeah, that's a really great question. I think the big thing, if I can take a step back is understanding from the mid-level perspective, how do I go from managing to leading? slash coaching. And we adapted, you know, we have a model called rise, which is what we use to, you know, to say, this is when you should manage and we define what management is. That's when you're tactically telling someone what to do, or you're teaching somebody what to do. Whereas coaching, the philosophy of coaching or leading is, I'm not going to give you a fish, I'm going to show you how to get a fish, right? Because that way you're self-sustaining. That way you can be an owner of your problem and the solution. And there's no dependency on me. That's how you elevate yourself. And so the first thing that we notice that becomes a really big aha moment, especially for mid-level managers, is when do I need to manage and when do I need to coach? And that's where we use the acronym RISE. There's a right or wrong answer, You should manage, meaning you're not going to coach someone and say, what do you think? And then say, eh, wrong, (laughs) right? Especially because the one that frustrates the other person, Mm -hmm. if there's a right or wrong coaching means that sometimes there isn't, there's so many paths that you can go. So you want to manage or tell them when there's a right or wrong, no need to coach there. The I in RISE stands for inexperienced. Coaching philosophy says you have to have basic knowledge and understanding. I can't ask somebody who is new to the organization to say, well, what do you think about how we should approach this website design when they have zero background? That's the time to teach. Once you've done the teaching and they have the foundational skill, then you can go on to the coaching component. The S is for specific. Is there a specific strategy or situation? This is typically true, especially when you have big initiatives or you're in a compliant industry where it's like there's, This is what has to happen. The how it happens maybe can be the coaching conversation, but sometimes you do need to specify this is what we're working towards. And the E is for essential. If something is urgent, you don't have time to coach. You're not gonna coach someone outside of a burning building and say, well, how do you think we should exit? You're gonna say, get out and then you'll have the coaching debrief after. And so what we find is when you're a new time manager which you know when you're a first time manager because you're just learning the basics what you have appetite for are things like how do I run an effective meeting what do I do in my one-on-ones you know and those are those are very hard skills but I'm calling them basic in that those are the things that you need to, before you can even get to that next level of management or leadership
1: which are these coach-like
2: abilities.
1: So you did something very interesting there that I actually haven't heard a lot of coaches do. You are essentially telling the mid-level managers and grouping coaching and leadership into one. Can you talk a little bit about that if you understand where I'm going? Because most, I don't think most coaches would combine those two words in a similar way as you have.
2: Yeah, there's a lot of taboo in that. Sometimes when people think coach, people are like, ooh, you know, it's like this woo-woo, hippie dippy thing. And what we are, honestly, my philosophy is leader as coach. What is my job as a coach? And this is our, my point of view and my take, Amalavita's point of view and take. My job as a coach is to make sure that whatever goals you have, you're successful in achieving your goals in your way that you learn the skills to be self-sustaining, that you are able to go through a change. Think about the best leaders we have. Are they the ones who are forcing that on you or are they helping and enabling you to help go through whatever change that you wanted to go through, whether it's small or big, whatever goals you have. And what I find is the best type of leadership actually integrates I would say the core coaching skills, which is why I interchangeably say leadership and coaching. The core coaching skills are active listening. Are you listening to what someone is saying and not saying, or are you just taking things from surface level? What, what someone is, you know, it's like, Oh yeah. Okay, great. I'm glad you agree. Oh, Janine, you said you were stressed out. Well, that sucks. (laughs) Rather listening to, Oh, Evelyn! Wow, you have two kids at home. That must be really hard, and managing all this other stuff. How are you handling it? Now I'm pulling more out. The next component to that is questioning. The best questions are those that get you to think. I was listening to that um, or watching that uh, Bill Gates documentary on Netflix, and one of the things that you know he, people were saying is that the thing that he does. doesn't have to be a subject matter expert. You don't have to be a subject matter expert to be a good leader or coach. What Bill Gates does really well, he asks good questions which make you pause and say, huh, maybe there's a different way to think about it, aka maybe there's a different problem I need to solve. And the hardest thing is to figure out what problem statement am I solving for? Albert Einstein said, give me 60 minutes and I'm going to spend 55 of them on the problem first because the solution is easy. And that's what a coach does. And that's where I think where good effective leadership is.
1: How do you teach people? Because I would say we have a lot of stubborn people in the industry. I don't know (laughs) if it's specific to the industry. It's just the industry I know, right? Um, That like, it's my way or the highway. This is the way we've always done things. And that's usually coming down from leadership, let alone like being hammered into you, like from day one, as, as an intern, like how, how do you make those individuals more, more pliable or or open to listening to what you have to say?
2: Well, here's the thing, if, unless you're coaching ready, and you're you want to change, I can't force you to change. So that's, that's step number one. I think the other thing is, being able to experiment and trying because we have and this is with anything this we resist change constantly. I mean my my whole master's was in change management, which is the you know the, the re, there's a reason why there's a master's behind it is because it's so hard for us to change. And the reason why we cha- can, it's hard for us to change is because it's helped us get through what we have so far. so therefore we can justify well why would I change if things have been working so far? I'm okay with this, I don't know what it's going to look like if I do change. So why would I then even take that risk. So when someone says, or is like, well, this is the way it's been, do it as I'm telling you. The first thing is being open to knowing, are you okay to experiment? If you think of something as an experimentation, you're a lot more likely to say, okay, I'm willing to try. The other part is, You don't need to do drastic things. It's small things at a time. Think about something that has very low consequences or is very maybe a low profile task or project or initiative that you can do controlled experiments with. Now, the next part of that would be asking yourself, am I proposing things because it's a process or is it a preference? Meaning, is it my preference or is this actually a process? a process that's going to change the outcome of the deliverable, a process that a client would like a process that helps us with efficiency? Or is it because I just like to look at things in a 12 font, you know, Times New Roman with certain colors. So therefore, this is what I'm dictating. So first recognize preference versus process. Once you do, then experiment. Maybe it's I'm going to take that low-hanging fruit, the thing that doesn't have as much consequences, right? And just give a very broad, here's what needs, here's what the end goal looks like. This is what the vision is. You figure out how it's going to be and just see what happens. I can't tell you how many times I have this conversation in in coaching conversations. And every time the client ends the call, he's like, oh, gosh, you know, I I don't know about this. This seems scary. (laughs) But that's part of the accountability. And it's like, well, I want you to try it and just pick one thing. And I want you to commit to me that you're going to do it one time this week. And they do. And they either verify their assumptions or they break their assumptions. And that's step number one to learning and change. You don't know until you try. And when what typically happens is client will come back and she or he will say, okay, not the way I would have liked it, but I actually learned something in how they're thinking. I learned that maybe they don't, they aren't thinking strategically as I am, or uh, they had a much better way than I did. (laughs) And, And that makes my life easier now. Because I can trust that they can have more and more added responsibility.
0: I think that hits into one of the things I brought up during your workshop. I asked you about micromanagers. Um, There were a lot of really great things, by the way, in your workshop. And this is just one of the ideas that we discussed. But it is a frequent thing in our industry. There are chronic micromanagers or people who have to work for chronic micromanagers. So I'm wondering, similar to where you were heading in that last question, if there are any words of advice you could share about how to either step out of those issues or learn to deal with someone who has those issues <laughs>
2: better? Well, the first thing I would want to know is what the reason why someone micromanages, well, several reasons, is understanding why that is. So for example, I get into micromanagement mode when I feel like I don't have the communication I need. Somebody else might get into the micromanagement mode when they feel like they are not able to have that control that they're looking for, aka, well, what does control look like for you? What do you need from me to be able to step out of it? So to go down to the root cause, the first step is to define what does micromanagement mean to you as an individual? If I'm working with three different direct reports, I have Sally, I have Tom, and I have Desiree. With Sally, Tom, and Desiree, I check in with them two times a day, one time in the morning, one time in the afternoon. And I say, hey, Sally, how's it going? What do you need from me? Hey, Tom, how's it going? What do you need from me? Desiree, how's it going? What do you need from me? And I do that again in the afternoon. And now Sally is saying to me, or Sally's thinking, I don't understand why form is always checking in on me. What Tom might be thinking is, what is form? Forum, like, why is she never there? She only checks in with me two times a day. And what Desiree's thinking is, this is great. This is exactly what I need. And here's what I'm thinking. I'm such a good manager. I'm always available to my my direct reports. My actions are the same. I follow up with every single one of them two times. I have four different reactions. My reaction is different. Maybe most aligned with Desiree. Tom and Sally hate my guts. In that one thinks I'm not there enough and the other one thinks I'm micromanaging. It's because we have different definitions of what support looks like. So step number one is define it. So We get so caught up in using words and don't realize that the words have different meanings to us. So define what the action or the behavior is. What Sally might say to me is, "Form, when you come to check in with me two times a day, it feels like to me that... You don't trust what I'm working on. What do you need from me in order for you to know what I'm working on at all times? Now, there's a conversation, potentially an uncomfortable
1: one, but those are the conversations we need to have in the workplace. I think that's really poignant. It is. Um, I'm interested in your perspective as a lot of teams are working remotely now. And unfortunately, especially with the situation in the U.S., will probably continue to do so for the majority of the year how have those type of skills changed now that most of the communication is happening via zoom and especially i feel like the importance of the written being able to 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 type and write has become elevated i'd love to get your opinion on that now you know with all of these virtual channels that we're communicating through
2: yeah, I think the big one is being able to understand communication preferences for your teams, especially as a manager, and then to do that as a team. For example, we use Slack at our workplace. And Slack is great. But at the same time, I'm in meetings all day. So if you're still waiting for me to respond to you on Slack, you're not going to hear from me until the, end of the day. In addition to that, I would prefer that we don't just keep slacking or emailing back and forth. If you have something, just call me and make it one minute, you know, and we'll get that problem solved. So that's my preference though, but that's not everyone else's preference. So it's kind of like a negotiation slash a compromise of, well, what do you need to one feel connected to make sure that you have support, whatever support looks like for you. Now you have to define that, right? Define what connected means, define what support means and come up with, well, here's what I would prefer. This is what you would prefer. Now, what do we mutually agree on? The other thing that we've done a lot of workshops around this now, especially with global teams, people on different regions, time zones, and also with what we're noticing and the feedback that we're getting is more and more teams are feeling disconnected from a camaraderie, from a we're no longer having water cooler conversations. Everything just feels so transactional. I'm in my own bubble now. So therefore, my fuse is a lot shorter. It's so important to be able to mimic your culture. And when I say mimic your culture, I'm not saying to take the same exact things and literally translate it verbatim in the virtual space, but to define the essence of, well, as a team, what do we stand for? What's important to us? What are our non-negotiables? Now, how do we recreate that virtually? And you do have to get creative, but that's a shared problem statement that everyone can have an input on and to make sure that you don't lose sight of that. Just because you're virtual doesn't mean you don't have culture. You absolutely have culture. You just have to figure out what that looks like now in a virtual environment.
0: That's a really good point. I know a lot of companies that I've spoken with are also grappling with that that same question. So I know they'll relate. Are there certain skills that you think uh, individual managers could consider in, in their own work to help elevate and improve some of that miscommunication that's happening specific to project deadlines, like the project manager who feels underwater in some ways. Uh, They feel like they have the responsibility of the office, the responsibility of their team, the responsibility of the deliverables. And perhaps the question is really around allowing themselves more space to figure out what their team needs. That might feel overwhelming for some people to take a step back and just allow more space in order to bring clarity around some of this communication piece.
2: I think the first thing as a, as a manager, one, we feel like we bear the burden of the financial responsibilities of the organization. We feel the burden of the growth and development of our team. We feel the burden of making sure we're managing our clients and the projects and the deliverables. Therefore I'm it's, it's the last person that then gets prioritizes myself or the project manager themselves. The first thing I would challenge with is, why is it only your responsibility? We're all owners in making sure that the organization is successful. We're all owners in making sure the client is successful, in making sure the team is successful. We all play different roles in how that happens, but we all are owners in making that happen. So to feel like you bear the responsibility to not only own the problem, but to solve the problem is where I would challenge the thinking right away. I might even go about suggesting bring that up as a, a to the team and say okay, you know, one of the things that we all collectively need to think about and it's one problem statement at a time. How do we all make sure that we're all getting what we need from one another and can still effectively perform but also take care of ourselves knowing that we may have little kids at home or that we need to have better boundaries. Some of the workshops that we do is on that. You know, we facilitate the conversation because sometimes managers don't know how to have that conversation of how do I communicate for what I need? Because I don't want to let someone else down. I don't want someone to feel like I'm disappointing them. Well, one, you're making an assumption that you might be disappointing someone. You do have to know it and name it. And then you can decide whether or not that's appropriate for the organization. But without knowing it, naming it, You're just, you're nowhere. And so step number one is know it and name it. Then decide, well, what does that mean for us as an organization or as a team? What are my non-negotiables? What are my boundaries? What do I need to perform? What does self-care look like? How can I set the expectations that, hey, you know, because I have kids, lunchtime, I have to be, like, I have to physically step away, which means what you will notice is I will not be available from 12 to 1, let's say. Now that you've provided context to that, if others didn't know that, they might be making assumptions like, Evelyn, why are you all of a sudden away from your computer? And I don't see that little green sign next to your name for a few hours. Are you not working? What's happening? Are you disconnected? Are you disengaged? And people start to make assumptions. When we make assumptions, we make even more assumptions. And they become so magnified that you're so far off from the truth. So the intent is to over-communicate and let people know what it is that you're doing, when you're doing it, and to be part of something together, to share and solve problems together. Ultimately, the manager is going to have the final say. But now people feel like they also share the responsibility.
1: I think that's an important distinction from... An example you gave earlier where, like, as somebody new to the organization, they might not have the experience to X, Y, and Z, but at the same time, they are a team member. And I think everyone from per- the person, from the interns, from the person that it's their first day of work, I think everyone starting, and it's a good reminder to middle managers, has feels that they have a responsibility towards raising the bar or raising the output of the organization as a whole. And I feel like sometimes middle managers forget that, or I'm not a millennial. So I'm going to say, you know, the millennials are X, Y, and Z, and they're not listening to me. But I think it's a good reminder that everyone kind of wants to participate. I would even say go as so far as to say the millennials really want to participate. So give them a reason to show up every day. Exactly. People want ownership. People
2: want ownership to feel like something is theirs, no matter what that is. You know, it could be just go back to your school days, like in middle school, when you owned something or you felt like you were, this was your sole responsibility. It didn't matter what it was, but then you took so much pride in it because it had your name stamped on it and you did it. And there was that sense of pride.
1: And that's what people feel when they feel a shared ownership. And I think what is really important to what you're saying too is you've essentially given a case study of how to give people that ownership. I think most individuals in architecture hear that or most middle managers and they say, "Well, you know, they don't have any financial responsibility. Like they they aren't a part of this." So, so thank you for kind of sharing that case example.
0: That that's what really stood out to me in your workshop was watching you model how to give feedback and you've done it already twice and two examples on this quick recording. Um, I wanted to give you a chance if there's anything that you want to share about some of the work that your company is doing or ways that people could sit in on a workshop you're offering, please let us know because I think that they would find value in that.
2: Yeah, no, thank you. Thank you for sharing that feedback as well. I think uh, the kind of going to address that point we get so caught up in frameworks and concepts that it's hard to say, okay, but tactically, what does that mean? Tactically, what does that mean? And that tactic is step number one in having a foundation. The next part is, what does it mean for me? That's where the coaching comes in. What does this mean for me? Something that works for me doesn't mean it's going to work for you. So you have to personalize it in your context and what you already have working with you. Uh, in terms of you know, kind of what does that look like now as you're listening to this, if I am interested in exploring coaching in any way, the first step is to get curious, figure out whether or not you're coaching ready. That's my first task. What I mean by coaching ready is, are you in a place of learning? Are you in a place of wanting to get uncomfortable to challenge yourself to go from good to great, you know, this is coaching is not something that you do because you want to get coached out of the organization. Coaching is something you do to upskill yourself, to get yourself to the next level. And that means whether it's investing out of your own pocket, or getting your organization to invest in your growth, I will say, you will be surprised how many organizations should you go to them and say, you know, I really want I've had thought about that there's a way for me to get better performance for myself and my team. And I want to invest in leadership coaching. Most organizations are very receptive to that, especially for professional development budget. So have that conversation, make a case study for yourself and partner yourself with a coach. You know, do your research. The biggest thing for coaching is making sure that you feel like there's a right fit. The coach that you want to work with, you should feel comfortable because you're going to be having a lot of conversations with them, sometimes uncomfortable ones it'll get vulnerable and personal as well. And so do your due diligence. Now, when you're thinking about what do I look for in a coach? We have a lot of articles on that. You know, how do you even decide, especially if the coaching space is new to you, what do you look for? What are the things that you want to be well informed by? And then also what is the process? And to break that down, there's a few things. Number one, make sure that whether it's a solopreneur or a company, you're going with an organization that has certified coaches, Coaching is a very unregulated industry, which means tomorrow you can call yourself a coach and no one will stop you. So going with a certified coach means that they've gone through a coach training program. They have hours, they have experience. You have to meet certain criteria. That's just like basic, bare minimum. Then the next part is, well, what type of process do you use? Do you even have a process? Whereas some coaches will be like, work with me and we'll get you there. Well, how are you gonna get me there? What is that gonna look like? do you have technology that you use? What frameworks do you leverage? Am I going to be working with one person? Or am I going to have a whole coaching team behind me? I'm our thing is, you're going to have different things that you're going to want to work on. As you go through your coaching journey. And one coach can't fix everything for you. That's why we have so many different mentors that we seek out so many, you know, different you don't go, it's not there's usually no one stop shop. So you want to find a place, hopefully, that has providers that work with you. You get a whole coaching team with a main lead coach. So those are a few things to think about. Um, our website is alvcoaching.com. So you can just hop on there to check us out and you know schedule a free call to be able to explore if coaching is right for you.
0: If an architecture studio decided to bring you in for a workshop, would you be open to something like that?
2: Absolutely. Our big thing will be understanding what does success look like, who's our audience, and what's that big pain point
1: that we want to solve for. So one of the most or one of the greatest takeaways that I got out of the conversation with Forum is this notion of the 12-year trap and that we really shouldn't wait 12 years to begin to develop our leaders. In fact, I feel like that should be an ongoing thing that happens out of school, there's so many different qualities of leaders and leadership that needs to show up along every step of the process of learning to become a better architect, that it really should be ingrained, if I were to put it into the process, like as an intern, or even as, you know, as early as day one of your orientation. That's just me, though.
0: No, I completely agree. You know, I think, We place so much, and I've talked a lot about this through my own work, but we place so much emphasis on the technical skills and learning how to become an architect that often the soft skills and the people management skills take a back seat. And so I think that's really why I wanted to bring Forum on because in my own career, I watched people who were stepping into management and leadership roles not having the support they needed to learn how to lead teams, but they... Are completely technically competent, they just maybe need a little bit more guidance on some of these soft skills.
1: Yeah. And it's interesting to me that communication continually comes up as something that architecture individuals, that people in our profession need to continue to work on. I think it's really not just communication, but it's also being empathetic to those on the receiving end. She gave that great example of kind of checking in with people on a regular basis, but you also need to understand how they are receiving those check-ins, right, uh, to really make sure that communication is effective. So it's not purely just about sending information, but it's the timing of the information, um, it's how it's received, uh, and it's actually, I would say, it's more about continuous development of how you work with one another and how you talk to one another and how you make sure everyone is actually getting things done. Forum brought up a really important
0: leadership idea that there's a difference between management and leadership. And so those skill sets are different. And something that I see from new managers is they're often trying to project this idea of leadership that they think which sometimes is actually management. There's a difference. And so I think um, Forum opened up a really great framework that we can talk about in our debrief of deciding when it's appropriate to manage versus lead. Or in, in her case, she's explaining the idea of coaching in terms of leadership. So that idea was rise. And I thought we could just, you know, quickly reflect on that
1: Yeah, so if I you know, if I think about the R and Rise, the right or wrong answers, I think there's absolutely a time that you need to just tell people what you want so they can actually meet your expectations. I think too often we believe there's a learning that is to happen by kind of hoping people guess what I want. And it's just it's much faster when you're direct.
0: That's right. And so sometimes, like, if we think about, I don't know, specifications is a good example, like there are right and wrong answers. Um, but I think there's sometimes in design problems, there's abstract solutions and uh, different paths things can take. And so those are the those are the opportunities to have a dialogue, a two way dialogue, and not just uh, decide that there there's an absolute answer to an equation. Um and in, in terms of the eye, we talked about inexperienced. And this is a very important one because I know that anyone who's ever worked right out of school in an architect's office is familiar with this thing that happens where you get thrown in the deep end. And basically, the architects are looking to you, wanting you to swim and seeing what you can, how much you can, you know, like swim on your own but it's actually better to do a little bit of onboarding first before you throw people completely in the deep end. Um, so this talks about inexperienced. If the person doesn't have enough background, then you have to start with teaching. You can't just push them out into the water. They have to have enough information from you before you can allow them the space and the freedom to for them to feel comfortable to do it on their own. So once they've had enough experience, then you let them swim on their own. Then you can coach them versus manage them.
1: Right. And S specifically focuses on specific. I didn't mean to use the word specific twice. Uh, If there are processes with a very specific way of doing things, and the firm has kind of weighed the pros and cons about why that should be done, then you just kind of have to manage people through that. This is the way we do it. This is why we do it. I think alternatively, if you're going to say, but if you find there is a way to do it quicker, faster, differently, uh, that leads to... A new outcome that might be better, then, then that's an opportunity to coach. For me, a great example of that is there are so many younger individuals that are so much better at infographics than I am that I might throw an idea out and then I just might leave it to them as to like, like think of several different ways to interpret this. So it's, it's more of a coaching opportunity rather than kind of a managing opportunity.
0: And the last part of RISE, E, is essential. And so if something's urgent and you don't have time to coach, then you're, of course, going to manage first. And Forum gave the example of if the building's on fire, you're not going to coach them on how to get out of the building. You're just going to say, get out of the building. Um, and so then you want to make sure, and I think this is where sometimes architects miss an opportunity, it's it's after the emergency is over, that you actually go into a coaching conversation. And so having that debrief is very important. And I think when you don't have it, that's where there's a huge missed opportunity in, in a really great relationship between a manager and a, a staff team member.
1: And I think there's one also important aspect of essential that if you are assigning anyone a task and it is like a part of this essential work stream, they should be able to run with it right away. If you don't have time to manage them, then also I think it's just like, maybe you need to consider one, taking it on yourself. If it's going to be one of those things where like, I could just could have done it better if I did it myself or to just, you know, bringing, bringing on a team member that, you know, can, can, manage through that immediacy. There just will be inevitably with any type of the work we do, there will be those moments where you just need the right people at the right time to get things done and get get things over the finish line. And that gets into a whole staffing conversation, which is <laughs>
0: not putting people who are not experienced at the right levels on the tasks that you need urgently. <laughs> yes. Um, but so this whole conversation got me thinking about micromanagement, uh, which I asked for him about in the interview. And I actually asked her about it in the workshop also, but her feedback to me on this topic really reframed my own assumptions about micromanagement. Uh, I've felt micromanaged at different points in my career and it, it was interesting because I always thought micromanagement was purely an issue of control and being architects, we all have control issues. So, but what she really helped me see is that it's an issue of communication preference also. So, you know, we have different needs around control and communication and the thing to practice is communicating what level of information you need or even managing up and saying, hey, you know, this is what I can do for you to help ease your worry about what you need in terms of delivery or communication. It sent me on this whole rabbit hole, Evelyn, and I ended up finding a great podcast on micromanaging. If anyone's interested in that topic further, I'll link it in the show notes. But it just talks about some research that Harvard Business Review did around micromanaging.
1: Yeah, I think there's a whole perspective that I have been talking to relative to the hybrid practice too, and managing for like time in seats versus building a trust and managing managing expectations and under like truly understanding that the, that individual has what they need to get what you need done, right? It's more about trust, and I almost think there's this misplaced lack of confidence in managers. We place so much as a fault of our lower level employees and our interns and the fact that what they are doing is because that they don't have the experience that they you know that they aren't asking the right questions that they aren't they are misrepresenting themselves um, you know in terms of their ability versus what they're able to do I think it's also I think we have to take more responsibilities as managers that some of that how they're performing and that we actually might be enabling them to perform at a lower level because of how we're how we are or are not setting up those individuals for success. And we can really only do that if we learn actually how to be a better manager.
0: And I want to come back to this idea around managers who feel underwater. And I know it's not just mid-level managers, it's across the board. Um, owners even feel stressed out, and that stress gets transferred down to different team members. But particularly on the mid-level manager role, they are trying to learn and they're trying to rise and step into this leadership potential. And there's a process that mid-level managers need to go through, which is learning how to communicate for what they need. And it's really about practicing it. And I find that coaching is a way to build that skill because it allows you the space you need to question your own assumptions, look for the gaps within your own skill set, and try new ideas out in a supported way. From my own coaching experience, what I've found is that you get more and more comfortable with change and looking for variation um, in your own assumptions and the way things could be. And the more you practice trying things differently than you would intuitively think to do, you learn that there's a lot of different ways to solve the same problem.
1: Yeah. And then the final thing that I want to point out related to La Vida. And I think this is true of any coaching, mentor, leadership, growing your own abilities. is going to be very hard. And they've acknowledged this. One size doesn't fit all, right? They have kind of a stable of coaches to help you with a variety of different aspects in your life. I just had an interesting back and forth conversation on, actually, this has happened several times in just the social social groups that I'm in about like, individuals wanting to find mentor, mentors or, or coaches. And I, I think there's an acknowledgement that as you move through time, you're going to meet, need different type of mentors and different type of coaches. So acknowledge that. Um, the coach that you need right out of school and the mentor you need right out of school is going to look very different um, even just a few years into the profession. And that's okay. But as you grow, I think the, the, the people and, that you need to hold you up will continue to change and evolve as well. And on that note, thank you for listening and tune in next week. Thanks for joining us on Practice Disrupted, a podcast by Practice of Architecture. Visit us at practiceofarchitecture.com to find out more about future episodes and the changing nature of practice.
0: We have several ways you can get involved with our growing community. Find us on social media at Arc. You can also become a member of the POA Lab or join us on Patreon.
1: And if you want to take your career or practice to the next level, Janine and I also consult, provide workshops, and speak regularly on this research, and we would love an opportunity to collaborate with you.
0: This show is part of Gable Media. You can learn more about other podcasts and video channels in our community by visiting gablmedia.com.
1: We are also looking for sponsors who want to partner with us in 2021 and beyond. If that's you, please contact me directly at Evelyn at practiceofarchitecture.com.
0: If you like the research we're doing here, please help us out by leaving a rating or review on Apple. We appreciate you subscribing on your favorite podcast app.
1: Don't forget to share with your friends and feel free to let us know what other topics or speakers you're interested in hearing from. Thanks for listening and see you next week.